0: Welcome to ProTalks, our podcast where we chat with CEOs and funders of some of the most interesting and influential asset management companies in the world.
1: So as CEO, I really focus on three things. I focus on culture, I focus on clients, and I focus on the strategy of the business. So it's important for other people to really understand the context of what we're trying to do.
0: Today we're here with Eric Gerd, CEO at Blue Bay Asset Management. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Eric.
1: Uh, Patricia, thank you very much for uh, for giving me the opportunity to speak with you. I appreciate it and, and look forward to uh, to chatting.
0: Okay, so let's start then with uh, some like uh, warm-up questions. Like, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, what's your background, and and how did you end up in the financial industry?
1: Uh, sure. Well, how much time do we have? No, I'm, I'm, the, <laughs> I'm the oldest of uh, I'm the oldest of five children. My parents had five of us in six and a half years.
0: Oh wow! <laughs> and
1: exactly that's what that's what I <laughs> asked my mother that from time to time. And uh, and we grew up in the Midwest in the United States. You can tell by my accent. Uh-huh. And uh, got into the industry. I, I, I it was a very odd odd thing because I had no plans to do it. And it was basically a couple of my friends were in the industry and they started talking to me. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll become perhaps a stockbroker. And it sounded like a very respectable thing to do, mm-hmm. knowing that I wasn't going to go to law school and perhaps not become an accountant. So started out as a stockbroker in 1986. And for those people on the podcast that have sold individual securities or or Convince clients to buy certain things, and have been in the industry a while. They'll remember 1987 was a compelling year, and it was the first time I ever did what we call a new offering. And so I called all my contacts in 1987 right before the crash, uh-huh. and convinced them to buy a stock that was priced at fifteen dollars a share. The next day, went to twelve dollars a share. On the the day before the real crash, I got them to buy more and it went from 12 on that day to five and a half on Monday. And I found that was uh, one of my early experiences in the industry is calling clients and mentioning to them that the stock they had just bought with me, that many of them had not paid for yet, had gone from 15 to, say, five and a half. I recall that day walking into a McDonald's to get lunch as a young stockbroker and thinking the person behind the counter was probably making more money than me and would be for some time to come. So that was by those were the early days. And I, I can't tell you can't replicate experience uh, that you, the experiences that you pick up in the market. It keeps you humble and it also keeps you curious. Uh, so I've since then I've spent about half of my career and I've been in the market then what is this maybe 35 years Half of my career was in the United States. The other half has been uh, outside the U.S. or on a a global basis.
0: And uh, so how do you describe your management style as a CEO?
1: Yes. uh, Well, I I would describe it uh, first and foremost as transparent. And the reason it's transparent is if I'm going to trust strategy. And I found that when I was early in my career, oftentimes I was asked to do things that I had no idea why I was being asked to do it, which was very difficult to be successful at it. And so as CEO, I really focus on three things. I focus on culture, I focus on clients, and I focus on the strategy of the business. So it's important for other people to really understand the context of what we're trying to do so that they can fulfill their roles. So what I, I tend to, to do with all the individuals that report to me and really emphasize and focus on them spending their time in these areas as well, is to think about, are they providing the right level of recognition? Are they providing opportunities to grow? And are are they giving the individuals below them, so it starts with me, autonomy? Because I found I don't like to be micromanaged, nobody Mm -hmm. else does. Mm -hmm. I feel that if you're not growing, then you become stagnant or you feel that you need to go somewhere else to continue your path of growth, and then recognition. And recognition actually goes beyond money. So I focus on those three elements with the people that report to me to create the best environment for them. And I encourage them to do that with the people that report to them and so on and so forth.
0: So continuing with that, um, how would you, how, so is the corporate culture in, at Blue Bay? How is? Um, how would you say are your main goals as an organization?
1: Yes, well, if, if I think about our, our culture or what we're trying to achieve, uh, the, the type of platform we're trying to create and, and how we become as successful as possible is first, I, I mentioned transparency, mm-hmm. and I think it's important. We do a number of things every month to make sure everyone in the organization is fully aware of, you know, how's the performance on our various strategies? Uh, what is the pipeline look as far as new clients and existing clients? How are our operational objectives? How are we meeting those? In other words, new systems and processes? Where are we? We try to make sure that everyone in the organization has this status and financially, how are we doing? good or bad? By doing that, people then can make their own decisions on how we can how they can help us achieve our objectives. So that I would say transparency. The second is creating an environment which we refer to as, an environment with a growth mindset. And this is one that lots of people talk about and it's relatively in vogue, but you, you need to concentrate on this day in and day out because oftentimes people will say, well, we need accountability. And sometimes what they're really saying is we need to blame someone. And if you start to blame people and you create this type of culture, it can, the whole firm can deteriorate because we're all going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. constantly. I'm, I'm making them on a regular basis. <laughs> but the idea is to be, if we're transparent about it, and we're looking at it as an opportunity to grow and make slight adjustments, this level of continuous improvement, I think, can tr- transform a business over time. And, and the last piece is inclusivity. I mean, I am fortunate, as and as, I, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from London, which is my home now, Mm -hmm. But London, I feel, is one of the most cosmopolitan, if not the most cosmopolitan places on earth, where you have people from all over the world and certainly all over Europe who live here and call it home. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's a competitive advantage for us if we take advantage of that talent and what I refer to as neurodiversity, different backgrounds, different perspectives. If we can take advantage of this and apply it to our business, I think it gives us an edge but it only happens if you're actually inclusive. It's one thing to hire people. It's another thing to listen to them. So we Mm -hmm. focus quite a bit on creating an inclusive culture. So it's really those three things. And what are we trying to achieve as a business? We just want to consistently be recognized as Europe's leading active manager. And we want to be relevant to our clients in all the other markets we operate in. Uh, We've been fortunate uh, just this last year to be named Asset Manager of the Year in our category, we're mm-hmm. about $80 billion in assets under management for the second time in five years. And that's really a reflection of the collective work that the team has done. But I think it, it enables us to take something that can oftentimes be aspirational and something that we believe across the business that we can achieve for us and for our clients.
0: So we talked about the goals uh, inside of the corporate culture and what about the values and, and would you say are a reflection of your own values as well?
1: Yes. I, I think some of the, uh, I, I think some of the goals we have or the culture need to be reflected in the values as well. And if I had to use uh, kind of one word, it's a sense of humility mm-hmm. and a sense of humility across the business. And that is, tied into mutual respect. You know, we all all oftentimes refer to the business as three legs of the stool. You have the front office or portfolio management, you have the infrastructure and you have business development. All three are equally critical to having a successful business. And the only way that can work is if we mutually respect and believe and support the others in those three legs of the stool. And then do it with a sense of humility. I mean, as I mentioned back in 1987, when I had mm-hmm. that first experience, that as much as I thought I knew what I was doing, I certainly didn't. I've had plenty of other experiences, you know, other opportunities to learn as I've gone along. And if you, the the portfolio managers or salespeople or anyone in the business, when they lack that sense of humility, that's usually where all things go wrong. So we mm-hmm. look forward in the people we hire, We try to treat each other with mutual respect and also have a sense that we haven't figured it all out.
0: I have to say, 1987 was the year I was born as well. So it was also a good year. (laughs) So so coming back to the corporate culture, so you are part of Royal Bank of Canada. Um, How would you describe the process of consolidation of your corporate culture, like in conjunction with the corporate culture at the Royal Bank of Canada?
1: Yes. Uh, Well, any integration or consolidation, you know, has several different pieces of complexity to it. One is just the operational complexity of bringing any business together and and the driving force for why we're getting closer to our parent company. And we've been owned for we've been owned by the Royal Bank of Canada for over 10 years now. So this isn't a recent acquisition, but up until recently, we had complete investment autonomy and substantial operating independence. Uh, We'll still have investment autonomy. It's important to keep the process pure. But the operational independence, I looked at the headwinds we're seeing in the industry right now, which are ESG and the costs related to it, uh, regulation, especially Brexit, which always tends to be the gift that keeps giving, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then I, I look at the cost of technology has forced us as many mid-sized asset managers are going to have to do to look at building up scale so that we can appropriately resource these headwinds and make sure that we're mitigating it and and pushing resources into what I think are the most appropriate areas, which is which are areas that deliver for our clients. So that's the operational, you know, the the rationale for it and, and where we're focused. But on the cultural side, we are fortunate, and I think it's, and this is going to be odd coming from the American, but to be owned by a non American firm. That <laughs> might be a little controversial, <laughs> but there's a Canadian culture that I think is similar to the culture that we have as a business. And that's that sense of humility mm-hmm. and a sense that we haven't figured everything out. And so, as a result of that, we found that the culture at RBC and the culture within Blue Bay are very similar. So we have a lot of work to deal with on the structural side, as I, I mentioned, those three areas. But on the cultural side, if we focus on on bringing the best of things and a sense that we're in it together, I think we can. Uh, I think we can achieve kind of a, a harmonious integration. That said, uh, when you become part of a larger organization, you can't have everything sit inside the business. So Royal Bank of Canada has 88,000 employees and they have a number of what they call enterprise services. Whereas before I controlled every aspect of all those three legs of the the stool, so to speak, as a business, Mm -hmm. now you have to rely on others. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be, I think, the more challenging aspect of the integration, but one we're obviously spending a lot of time on.
0: And so you put like a lot of emphasis earlier in the in the diversity. And the um, I wanted to ask as well, what the strategies do you have in place to create uh, more diverse teams, and how do you feel that is very important?
1: Yes. Well, as I mentioned, if when I think of diversity, I think of it first and foremost actually as inclusion because. Without inclusion, diversity is just a check-off-the-box exercise. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't achieve anything. Mm -hmm. So creating an inclusive culture, which goes then first and foremost to transparency, I think is important. So if I look at the policies we put in place, by creating inclusion, and we have a number of different committees and groups together to make sure information is moving right up to me and then throughout the organization so very fluidly, I think that's important coupled with transparency. Oftentimes in businesses, uh, someone may be hired, but they're excluded from the conversation. They're excluded from information that they need to really be able to do their job and participate. So mm-hmm. that's why I go back to inclusion as being important, but matched with that transparency. So we, we, we hire from you know, most of our people. We've got close to 500 employees based here just in the UK, in London, at the same office. So our hiring pool will be for people from all over the world, and we keep an eye on and and really try to measure, are we, you know, are we balanced? How are we paying people? Are we sure that there's not a huge gap in compensation? When we're hiring people, we ask the question, you know, what does the pool of candidates look like and why are we getting, you know, are we getting a pool of candidates that's not as diverse as it should be? So we focus on that and then we focus on neurodiversity as well. Because, again, I believe our edge, being in, the, uh, being in London here and, and being in Europe, which I, I, is home for me now, mm-hmm. uh, it gives us an advantage over many of our competitors if we take advantage of it. Because having different perspectives looking at the same problems is a massive advantage over those that have what you'd refer to as kind of groupthink. Mm-hmm. And we see that not just with the individuals, but also their investment styles. Because we tend to be a firm, or we are a firm, that really sits at the convergence point between alternative asset managers and traditional asset managers. So when you have a problem that comes up and somebody's used to applying a long-short mentality or a private private markets mentality to a public market problem, they're going to come at it very differently than somebody that's used to, say, long-only or publicly listed securities. And I find we get a better result uh, given this kind of neurodiversity than if we just had one type of mindset uh, within the organization.
0: And how do you how do you filter that? So do you have like any processes in place like uh, like I don't know how do you how do you find these neurodiverse people in terms of like the strategy? so like how do you yeah, the process of selection?
1: Yes, well, on the on the investment team, Uh, Mm -hmm. We have a single investment platform. And what makes us a little bit, I don't know if completely unique, but different than many firms is most traditional asset managers now are trying to provide alternative capabilities because their clients want Mm them. But those oftentimes they sit on the side or almost separate from the rest of the business. What we do is we've brought our, our alternative capabilities are embedded in a single investment platform. Mm-hmm. So they're involved in all the investment debate. They're involved in our weekly investment committee meetings so that everybody has the opportunity to share their perspective on various problems. We don't have a single house view as a result of that. So that's one way that we fostered from an investment perspective. Mm-hmm. When it comes to hiring, uh, we've got uh, you know a fairly robust hiring process that gives us visibility into what does the hiring pool look like? And there's an emphasis on ensuring that we've got a diverse hiring pool with which to select from. And then also when it comes to promotion and the way we construct our various uh, leadership teams, making sure that it's a, uh, you know, it's not a one dimensional look.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So now we are going to the most like a uh, personal side and I uh, think yeah, I like to have always like this part as well, where people can get to know you a bit. So what like uh, do you have any hobbies like what do you like to do when you are not working
1: okay well i (laughs) i wish i feel at a a distinct disadvantage both when i go back to the u.s and i i speak pretty fluent american and (laughs) then also when i'm here in the uk and i'm my, my wife is english and so my uh my english is pretty good now as a result of that but because i don't follow a single sports team either here or in the u.s I always feel myself at a bit of a loss when it comes to sporting. So, it is uh, other than participating in some of that, that's clearly not a hobby for me. I would say travel and probably reading. So, travel, I've been to 68 countries. Oh, wow. So, I've done a, a fair amount of travel. And for me, again, it's I, I love experiences. So, perhaps I was born in the wrong decade. They say that's what <laughs> millennials like, but I, I, I love it. And so, to to experience different things, see different cultures, explore different uh, different places, it's, it's it's my joy. And obviously, during the period we've been living through, that's made it uh, far more challenging uh, than it it would be in the past. Uh, having lived, I was fortunate. I lived in Singapore for a couple of years, so that really gave me a an excellent uh, platform with which to travel most of Asia from, and then. Obviously, being here in Europe, it makes it easier to do as well. And then reading. I, I'm just a passionate reader because i both primarily nonfiction, but uh, some fiction as well.
0: And what would you like to read? Like what you, what is your favorite? I mean, I know it's very difficult. I have many favorite books, but what would, would you say is your
1: favorite book? Well, it, so it depends on the moment yeah. um, and, and the kinds of books. I think i i get asked this question from time to time because I do a lot of reading and we actually have uh-huh. a book club we have a okay. book club within the uh w- within the firm and so we'll be reading different books and it's it's a way of bringing people together again and i would say the the two most relevant books to me currently are the uh, uh one is called the new world order and that was okay. by henry Kissinger, mm-hmm. and the second was the and that one gives you an excellent perspective on how various parts of the world actually look at things, mm-hmm. and it helps explain some of the the really difficult times we're seeing in, uh, in in Russia and Ukraine right now. And then also there was a second book called The Road to, to Somewhere, and that was an interesting book written here in the UK on populism, but it uh, it could be appropriate here and, and many other places mm-hmm. and it really framed the discussion not as really an economic difference but something about those that grew up close to home and those called somewheres versus those of us that uh, could really be anywhere in the world and feel comfortable and the conflict between those two perspectives and the uh, the the impact on the the electorate and the impact on the economy and the culture, mm-hmm. fascinating, fascinating book. So those would be two I would uh, I would recommend to people along with something called Rebel Ideas, which talks about neurodiversity by a gentleman named uh, Matthew Syed. I also found that to be uh, very compelling. So those are the the three kind of more serious books that I I picked up recently. <laughs>
0: I will make a note i will add them to my list as well they <laughs> sure. sound really interesting and uh, so what would you say like after all your experience and all the years you have been working and um, what would you say success means to you
1: success now that is almost impossible to define by the way because so success it, it just depends because in business you usually have an objective but then mm-hmm. when you hit the objective then you've got a new objective so whereas success to me feels like a, a point in time or a, a state of mind. And there's days where I feel very successful, where I've had a successful day and just as a parent as well, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm as a parent, there are days I feel very successful. There are days I feel like a complete failure and that stretches across it, across my, uh, across my life. So I would say the way I define success is at a moment of time where you feel everything is at equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a great emotion, but it's one that uh, kind of comes and goes. And I've, I've recognized it as something that is, is not an end state that I think I'll someday achieve.
0: I mean, I think that's a, a good definition. I liked it. So the last question would be like, uh, what advice would you give to someone? Wanted to work in the in the asset management industry.
1: Well, the advice I would probably give someone, and it's because I've interviewed numerous people and I've, I've thought about my own mistakes along the way, is first and foremost be humble. And sometimes you see new graduates and those just entering the business uh, entering the business. They felt that they're because of their book smarts and their ability to access Google and. Investopedia and all sorts of other resources that they want to prove how smart they are to you. Mm -hmm. And the reality is we're surrounded by incredibly intelligent people, but we're always making mistakes and we're Mm -hmm. always learning. And so if I see someone that comes in with a sense of humility, matched with really a, a passion or intellectual curiosity, I think that's a recipe for success. If they come in with an arrogance or a, an immediate mindset that says I've, I've kind of figured it out. Mm-hmm. I think that's a recipe for disaster.
0: I think that's a really good advice and uh, so we have got to the end of the, of the conversation. It was lovely chatting with you Eric. Uh, Patricia, it was a pleasure. <laughs> I hope you had a, a good time as well uh, chatting with me and, and yeah for everyone uh, listening, uh, we will be back in two weeks and uh, follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletter to be up to date. Thank you, Eric. Thank you,
1: Patricia.